Hello, listeners. I'll be your narrator for this evening. My name is Jack, and these are the stories I wrote. Timberwolves. Fiction. Sam first saw them at the bedtime with the beasts overnight experience at the Red Oak Zoo. A pack of ten timberwolves running their pack around the border of their gated-off campsite. They wove in between the trees like dancers between silks, their silver fur glistening from the moonlight. The northwestern wolf, known as the timberwolf, can be found from Alaska all the way to Wyoming. They tend to hunt at night and are pack animals. The largest pack consisted of 42 wolves and was compromised of four distinct wolf families all under the guide of one pack leader. The zookeeper chimed in. The kids all ooed and awed while Sam stood right against the fence, peering through the wire. The largest wolf was just ten feet away, looking for a scent. It stopped and looked at the girl with its great golden eyes and cocked its head. A family, she thought. Travis and Teresa were good. Way better than Joan and Dave in Iowa. Way better than most of the homes a seven-year-old had stayed in thus far. But to Sam, they were just good. Their home in Oregon was spacious and surrounded by thick trees ripe for exploration. They were more than willing and even excited to give or buy anything for her. The overnight at the zoo had, in fact, been Travis's idea when he saw Sam watching Animal Planet in her bedroom. So, when Sam and the car ride home went on and on about the wolves and how they ran in the moonlight, it was no surprise that within the week, Sam's bedroom was filled to the brim with books and paraphernalia on the various lupines. Over the next two weeks, Sam perfected her plan under the guise of a child's enthusiasm, coming to a head when she asked Teresa to help her make a wolf robe. It was made from a soft gray knit, with tiny white buttons down the front and a hood that covered her head like a wolf's mask. She waited until the moon was full. It would be better for her to see that way. Packed a bag with water, fruit snacks, and a pound of raw bacon, and walked into the woods. She walked for miles, wove through briars and broken branches, and after hours she heard that first howl. They were headed her way. The crunch of leaves growing louder, then slowing to a stop. She could feel that she was surrounded, yet all was silent. Through the brush, the form of a great white timber wolf appeared, its eyes amber and piercing, 
it stands tall. Sam pulled the hood over her head. The Amber Alert had gone unresolved for a year. After the first month, the search parties had stopped. Experts said that by that time, she was more likely dead. They stopped searching for the body two weeks after that. Teresa and Travis were devastated, as most good parents are. Teresa insisted on leaving everything in Sam's room exactly as she left it, going so far as to drawing her curtains and putting a new glass of water on her bedside table before she went to bed. Travis would record Animal Planet documentaries for Sam every Sunday. The two didn't even consider adopting another child. 366 days after Sam's disappearance, Teresa went into Sam's room to open the curtains as she did every day. As she parted the curtains and let the sunshine pour in, she heard a rustle beneath her and a small yawn. In the bed beside her sat Sam, hair messy from sleep, smiling slightly, she said. What's for breakfast, Mom? They never talked about what had happened. Years passed, birthdays, holidays, middle school, high school, college, laughter, tears, hugs, smiles, sleep. After college, Sam moved out into the city, working hard in the urban jungle, surrounded by the sounds of mechanical society, very much unlike the crickets of the woods surrounded home she grew up in. And Sam did very well. She was very successful. At night, she would visit the park and walk barefoot. When her father passed, she came home for a while, and on the last day of her stay before it was necessary for her to return back to work, Sam and her mother sat out under the moonlight on their back porch. I know we don't talk about it, because the past is the past, and we cannot change it, her mother started, cautioned every syllable. But what happened out there? How did you come back? Sam looked at her mother, studying every aspect of her face and looked into the woods. Sam smiled. Wolves that wander will eventually come home. Without. Memoir. When Ovid describes the death of Maliger, he says, Young men and old lament. People and princes moan, and the women of Caledon by the river Euenus tear at their hair and beat their breasts. There are some times where grief can be solemn and tearful, carrying some deep wail and shudder of sorrow, and then there are times where grief can be violent, where the hands of torment and pain reach into your chest, strangle your heart, and pierce with their claws so that you may never escape. A grief so excruciating that it causes adrenaline to race through your veins so fast that you fear they might rupture. Your nerves 
frantically try to convince your brain to stop the madness, to be rational, to end the pain. But by that point, the grief has become more than just emotional. This type of grief is chemical, primal, and it is the grief I know well. I can still feel the pilled flannel of his bedsheets, smell the odor of his unwashed pillowcase, hear the plaguing crinkles of his dorm-issued mattress. They are ghosts on my skin, whispering in my ears, swirling in and out of my mind during moments of the most inopportune. I can recall that moment better than any other moment of our almost two-year relationship. In the ten minutes between his classes on February 10th, he had informed me that he didn't love me anymore. He then left me in his room to cope, saying that he still wanted to celebrate Valentine's together. I had been trying to combat a depressive relapse for about six months at this time, if not more. My life had been falling apart once again. My boyfriend had been the only thing keeping depression's soul-sapping tendrils away. He was the only steady thing, the only thing that truly loved me, no strings. At least, I had thought he did. From that bed... The ground around me shook, bottoming out and sending me hurtling down a pit to hell. I writhed in anguish, my tears boiling, gagging, as I tried to suppress the screams of my sanity ripping in two so that his roommates wouldn't hear. I clawed at his bedspread in an attempt to hold on as the world spun around me. My lungs seized, my bones splintered. My teeth sank into my arm to muffle the sobs. I couldn't stop the shaking, but I had to stop the shaking. I had to gain control. I had to go to class in 30 minutes. That's when I heard it again. Those thoughts that clouded me as a child. The thoughts that had cloaked me in a fog of loneliness, hatred, and self-loathing for six years. The rage that I had caged away long ago had broke from its chains, charging with blood-stained razor horns and spiked hooves. Its eyes of ember-orange burned through its new target. Me. There was a mirror next to his bed. In the mornings, after I'd spent the night and had just finished getting ready, he would often stand beside me admiring the image of the two of us together. My hands ached to feel the shards of that mirror embedded in their skin. My neck wanting, straining, to feel the burning slice of its silver slivers glide across it and tame the unruly pain through my own controlled agony. I tore myself from that 200 thread count prison and faced my salvation only to find that it was not a monster in the mirror, but rather a tormented girl, unrecognizable to anyone who would know her. 
My face had been contorted by muscles I had not known existed. My eyes swollen and scarlet and the skin around them sizzling from my tears. My hair was wired and wild from my fingers digging at their roots. My body looked fragile, like a dead baby bird on the pavement whose egg had fallen out of the nest before it could hatch. My knees buckled and collapsed beneath me. I now knelt in front of the mirror, staring at a creature too pathetic to kill. I made myself focus on my eyes, really look at them and remember that I hadn't hit the bottom, that I couldn't give up over this. I made myself look at the girl in the mirror who had fought for six years to survive and find happiness. My lungs released, and I took a deep breath, and I whispered to that girl in the mirror and said, You've found happiness before, and you sure as all hell can find it again. And now, for some inspiration. How he breathed, fast, wheezing, unsteady, sharp, like an empty jug. Soul was long gone, and only cold wind remained blowing on a jug. Be it stout or frail, hand-blown glass or molded clay, any jug can break. Glass will surely crack, splinter when overheated. Changelings always do. Their anger heats them. Their rage bursts their empty self, leaving you with dust. She has the cold wind, empty, but still stands so strong, still waiting to break. Sword of glass still cuts, yet shatters against the bone. Shards stay in its place. The Tester Fiction Marion sat alone in the train car, dreamingly staring at her image in the mirrored window. She had never tested a beach town before. She wondered about how blue the water would be, if the sand would be rocky or fine. Perhaps the buildings would be made of white stucco, with blue tile accents like the ones the recruitment catalog had advertised. Marion's job so far had sent her to a very dark forest, a haunted castle, and a very grotesque-smelling swamp all within a week from when she first got hired. The fast pace hadn't even permitted her to change her clothes. Her boots were still caked in mud that reeked like a startled skunk. At least I'll be able to rinse off in the ocean, Marion thought to herself as she pulled a twig out from her tangled ponytail.
The train slowed to a stop, and Marion slung her rucksack onto her back and grabbed her walking stick. The electric sign above the train door read, Aurora Beach, as Marion stood in front of it, waiting for it to open. She was bathed in a blinding white light that she excitedly stepped into. Aurora Beach was bigger than all the other locations, less straightforward. When she stepped out of the train, she was greeted by an arch that read, Welcome to Aurora Beach, in shiny brass letters. She looked everywhere for the arrows she had grown accustomed to following in the other locations, but was interrupted by a message on her tester tracker, the device on her wrist which recorded her progress and reported her findings back to headquarters. The functionality of this town is not only to progress, but also to explore, the tracker's screen read. Marion promptly forgot about the arrows. She saw the ocean's sapphire water glimmer in the distance and proceeded towards it. She cut through the brick-laden town as fast as she could, avoiding the few merchants who shouted for her attention. The closer she got to the shimmering cerulean, the faster a large, towering brick wall grew before her. Securing her walking stick behind her back, Marion went for it with a running start, managing to scale a little over half of the wall before she skidded down in defeat. She tried again, starting from a further distance, but to no avail. Sweaty and tired, Marion sat down on the ground and stared up at the behemoth before her. She could hear the waves crashing from beyond the wall and the flock of gulls calling above her. If only there was something I could grab onto, Marion thought. She stood up, having been struck with an idea, and prepared to run at the wall again, only this time with her walking stick in hand. Marion took off, and as she reached the apex of her climb, she jabbed her walking stick into the wall, wedging it between two of the bricks. She hoisted herself onto the stick and, using it to gather her footing, lifted herself on top of the wall. The view was breathtaking. The setting sun painted the sky a swirl of orange, pink, and purple, and the ocean glistened so much that it was no longer blue, but silver. Marion dropped down the wall, the sand breaking her fall. She ran with such joy towards the gleaming sea. She could imagine the cool waves soothing her aching muscles and the salt cleansing her soiled body. The water splashed underneath her boots, and she began to feel the chilled water encircle her calves when... Everything went black. When she came to, Marion was in front of the sign that read in shiny brass letters, Welcome to Aurora Beach, with her walking stick in hand. The swamp mud was still caked onto her boots.
Author's Note Stories I Wrote is an audio archive of the written works of Jack. Jack has been writing all of her life and wanted to give those stories a chance to live. Like our Facebook page, Stories I Wrote, and follow us on Twitter at capital S-I-W-Cast. As always, trigger warnings and interlude titles are listed in the description. And remember, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. So share your stories, share these stories, and as always, thank you for listening.